0: Okay, let's just bow our hearts one more time as we come before God's word. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and powerful. And Father, by recognizing that it is living, we recognize, Lord, that it can exert an influence. And Lord, we pray that it does over us. We pray, Lord, that we would be humble as we come before your word. And Lord, that we would be willing to learn. Lord, prepared to change our own perceptions or misconceptions Lord your word is truth Father we live in a world that is so full of deceit and lies and so Lord we need your word to guide us to be a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths and so this morning as we just turn to this passage in the book of Kings to continue our study we pray that you speak to each one of us and Lord speak to us as a fellowship lead us forward we pray Lord, keep us growing in knowledge and grace. Lord, just take my words, my thoughts, and Lord, may they become that which you would have for us here this morning, that we would grow. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been looking over recent weeks at King Ahab. He's been the kind of central figure. Elijah has stepped onto the scene. Elijah's uh, boldly gone up to Ahab and declared that there's going to be a drought for three and a half years and walks off again and Ahab is very unhappy about this. And then obviously that culminates in this situation on Mount Carmel as we've seen where there is no doubt that God is the Lord. Elijah challenges the people and said, "If you know, why, how long will you waver between two opinions? If God is God, serve him. And of course we've looked at the personal application of that. Because you know when we look at scripture, we see that which has happened historically. But of course all of these things are there for our learning. And so we've got to accept and understand that when we're looking at these things, they're not just historical narrative. These are things that are written by God who's outside of time, who knew that we would be at the places we are in our lives right now. And so these things speak to us. They're a challenge to us. How long will we waver between two opinions? How long will we allow the gods of this world, the things of this world, to compete with the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob? Now, we've seen, again through all of this, the, the decline of the nation. As we've said already, it was some 60 or so years before all this that the nation divided after Solomon And Jeroboam took the northern kingdoms, and Rehoboam, son and son, took the southern kingdom of Judah. And we've seen in the north, uh, the kings go from bad to worse. Proverbs 14.34 tells us, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And we see this played out dramatically in these verses that we've been looking at. As King Ahab is now taking the nation to the next level of rebellion against God. Psalm 33 verse 12 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, and the people whom he's chosen for his own inheritance. Now, of course, the blessings were there for Israel to have taken, the northern kingdom. You know, each successive king that comes to the throne has had that opportunity to reject what had happened before. Now down in south we will see as we move on uh, by God's grace, and particularly when we look in Chronicles, because Chronicles is very much the account, the historical account of the kings from Judah's perspective, whereas the Book of Kings, first and second, is the account of the, the nation from the northern kingdoms' perspective. There's of course a bit of overlap, but in the south we find that there are kings. They're bringing reforms. They try and bring the, the hearts of the people back to God. Now, Elijah in the north has tried to do that. And of course, for the people at that particular moment on Carmel, the people's hearts were turned. And how much blessing was potentially there for these people. And of course, they end up straight away falling back into idolatry. Psalm 83, the first four verses there says, Keep not thou silence, O God, hold not thy peace, and be not still, O God. For lo, thine enemies make a tumult, and they that hate thee have lifted up the head. They have taken crafty counsel against thy people and consulted against thy hidden ones. They have said, come, let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be no more. Now we're going to move into a time, historically, when this was starting to happen. But of course, we're looking in one sense at the the natural things, the things that took place with the other kings of the other nations. But of course, there is a spiritual dimension to this, and we need to understand that Satan, right from the time of Abraham, wanted to destroy Israel. You know, even before Israel becomes Israel, Abraham is there, and we have the situation with Ishmael, and then we see that continued persecution of Abraham's descendants those of the seed so Isaac and then Jacob and how in Egypt Pharaoh tried to destroy the children of Israel and subsequently throughout their history and so not only were there real physical enemies but there were real spiritual enemies that were and I may use the expression probably in the right context they were hell bent on trying to see Israel destroyed to stop the Messiah coming and we've talked about this before God's plan And how Israel was so important. And this is why so many blessings were promised to Israel. But we're looking at the northern kingdom and how things are just falling apart. You know, they'd rejected God, as we said. They turned aside to idols. And it's incredible to think that they could do that, given all that they'd seen, all that they'd known. And each successive king had led them further into this idolatry. And even after this three and a half years of drought, Even after that incredible experience on Mount Carmel, where after a whole day where the prophets of Baal have been calling upon their God and cutting themselves and doing all the things they were doing, Elijah at the time of the evening sacrifice goes up and he soaks this innocent sacrifice, this bullock that had been placed on the altar. Soaks it three times and then calls on God and God rains down fire and burns it up. You know, even after seeing that with his own eyes, Ahab still does not repent. And you just start to see the hardness in man's heart. And so now God, as a result of this, as a result of the warnings that had gone before, is now going to bring further judgment upon Ahab himself and also upon the land. Now we need to, of course, understand that this is what was being prophesied. And even Elijah, we've seen after this situation we were looking at last week, Elijah has that kind of uh, rather depressed phase that he goes through, thinking that everything had fallen apart, that we didn't get the result we were trying to achieve. And he ends up, of course, down at Mount Sinai. And that's, as we were singing in the words of that hymn this morning, the earthquake, the wind, and the fire, but then God speaks in that still small voice. And this is what we saw last week. The Lord said unto him, unto Elijah, Go, return on thy way. And we said last time, you know, it was kind of like, Remember where you started. Remember the zeal you had. And so God picking Elijah up really and encouraging him to get back on with this mission. And he says, go on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus and when thou comest, anoint Hazel to be king over Syria. And Jehu the son of Nimshi shall thou anoint to be king over Israel. So again, even at this point, Elijah knows that Ahab's days are now numbered. His dynasty is over. Because no longer is it going to be any of his children that would sit on the throne, but we have this individual Jehu, who's the son of another individual by the name of Nimshi. So Ahab's dynasty now, coming to an end. In fact, Omri had been his father, Ahab the son, but no more. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel, Mola, Shall thou anoint to be prophet in thy own room? And it shall come to pass that him that escapes the sword of Hazel shall Jehu slay, and him that escapes the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. So this promise, this prophecy, the judgment was coming upon the land because God had given them this incredible sign, this incredible witness and testimony that he is God, and they'd rejected it. Back in Deuteronomy, and we've looked at this passage a number of times in connection with this portion of scripture, We see this prophecy that Moses, or the Lord, reveals through Moses to the nation. And picking up verse 23 is, Thy heaven that is over thy head shall be brass, and the earth that is under thee shall be iron. Now, of course, we've said already, that becomes the basis for Elijah's prayer. Elijah, James tells us, a man just like us. As we've already commented, Elijah just simply praying according to God's word. That's why he could have the faith he did. He said, you know, you don't need a lot of faith, you just need a big God. And that's what Elijah had. Just a bit of faith in a big God. And Elijah, just like us, we can pray anything according to God's word. And because God is faithful, we can be absolutely confident. And so Elijah prays that it's not going to rain for three and a half years. And just as this prophecy here has said, was promise, that if they rejected God, if they served idols and the gods of the nations then God would stop the rain. And that's what that says. Verse 24 carries on. The Lord shall make the rain of thy land powder and dust. From heaven shall it come down upon thee until thou be destroyed. The Lord shall cause thee to be smitten before thine enemies. Now, really to this point, that hasn't happened. This is really now, this is the first time that we're going to see really this start to take place. Israel's had a few problems with some of the nations around them. But now, this promise that we read in Deuteronomy, the Lord shall cause thee to be smitten before thine enemies. Now, during the time of Judges, of course we see some of that. But since they've become a kingdom, we've not really had any problems from outside. And we read, And thou shalt go out one way against them, and flee seven ways before them. And shall be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth. Now, ultimately, that is what's going to happen. But this is now just like the prelude. In a sense, it's a little bit like a matinee performance. You know, this is the dress rehearsal of what is really going to happen. Now, these were real events, but it was like a warning for the nation. You know, and God does the same for us. We see even in our day, God allow these kind of warning signs to come. You know, we've seen even things like the Twin Towers. And I don't know, you may have seen and read various prophetic things at the time. People were saying, oh, I wonder if this is a Revelation seventeen eighteen 18 thing. You know, where it talks about fallen, fallen, it's Babylon the Great. And some people were saying, well, maybe New York and United Nations being centered there and all this. Maybe it was a judgment. Maybe that was a fulfillment. I don't think it was. I think the Bible is very clear about those details. However... It's interesting because there's an incredible parallel if you look at the whole situation with the Twin Towers and what we read in Revelation 17 and 18. It talks about a great city that has influence over the world. It talks about the judgment coming. It talks about people from the sea being able to look on and seeing the destruction, the smoke of the burning. And actually you see there's a real parallel. I don't think the Twin Towers is a fulfillment of 17 and 18. But I do think it's very interesting because I think there's just an element there Where we see how real the possibilities of those things happening. Because, you know, up until that point, I'm sure many skeptics would have been quite quick to say, that could never happen. You know, you'd never get a city that would be destroyed and have that kind of effect on the world. But now we've seen it, we've seen with our own eyes. Another interesting uh, element in Revelation, it talks about um, a star from heaven falling. The name of the stars, we're told, is Wormwood. And it makes the waters contaminated. Now you may remember the meltdown at Chernobyl many years ago. Chernobyl apparently means wormwood, and so you know. So people at the time were jumping on that, and saying, "Oh, it's a fulfilment of Revelation." It started to happen. No, I don't think it was, but I think it was a dress rehearsal because we saw waters around that area becoming contaminated, and suddenly you start to see the. In a very real and practical way, many of the things that we read in God's Word that may seem fanciful at first could actually happen in ways that we suddenly step back and go, wow, I never thought that could happen that way. Now, I think the Lord is doing exactly the same thing with Israel at this point. I think He's told them already what's going to happen, and now we start to see tremors. We start to see the build up to all that is going to come. Ultimately, we're going to get to that point where Assyria will take the northern kingdom captive. And Babylon is going to take the southern kingdom captive. And then Israel are going to be cast out of their land, just as this prophecy says. You see, Israel may have thought they were getting away with it. But this verse here, let's just read this, Deuteronomy 28, verse 51 onwards. It says, and he shall eat the fruit of thy cattle, the fruit of thy land, until they'll be destroyed, which also shall not leave thee. Uh, either corn, wine, or oil, or the increase of thy kind, or thy flocks, or thy sheep, until uh, he has destroyed thee. It's talking about the kings that are going to come upon the land. And he shall besiege thee in all thy gates. That hasn't happened yet. In our study through scripture at this point, in the, the time we get to the book of Kings, we haven't had a siege Of any of the cities of Jerusalem that we have recorded in scripture, even looking back through Judges, we haven't had that kind of thing going on. But this is something that had been prophesied and now under Ahab's reign, for the first time we're going to see this take place. So just as prophesied, and he shall besiege thee in all thy gates until thy high and fenced walls come down wherein thou trusted throughout all thy land and he shall besiege thee in all thy gates throughout all thy land which the Lord thy God gives thee in verse 41 back in Deuteronomy 28 it says and thou shalt beget sons and daughters but thou shalt not enjoy them for they shall go into captivity now once again Ahab is the first king to really experience the fulfillment of these prophecies. And you realize the depths that a nation has sunk to, that God now allows these judgments to come upon them. And of course, we need to be mindful of Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. It simply says, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And Ahab now Reaping exactly what he's sown. He's rebelled against God. He's done everything God says don't do. And so God now will bring the judgment upon him. So that's our lead in to chapter 20 of Kings. So let's uh, carry on with the text. And we read verse 1 of chapter 20. And Ben-Hadid, the king of Syria, Syria gathered all his host together. And there were, look at this, 32 kings. 32 kings with him. And horses and chariots And he went up and besieged Samaria and warred against it. Never in the history of the nation of Israel has anything like this happened to this point. 32 kings, imagine what that must have been like if you lived in Israel at that time. We're not told how many uh, the number of the uh, mass allied armies against Israel was here. But it must have been terrifying. 32 kings are coming up with Ben-Hadid of Syria. Just one king would have been enough to be concerned, but 32 other nations, effectively, are now joining forces against Israel. I mean, it's so overwhelming. It almost, it just you can't help but see that God is engineering this. Israel doesn't stand a chance. Again, horses and chariots, all these things that these nations would have amassed and Their military power now amassed against Israel. And they besieged Samaria. Samaria now the capital as we've seen. It was Terza. We've seen it moved now to Samaria. And Ahab effectively makes it his home. And now they're besieging it. I wonder what Ahab's thinking at this point. I wonder if he's starting to feel a little bit repentant for all the things he'd done. Was he seeing this as God working? Yeah. Well, Sometimes when things go wrong, people cry out to God and they start repenting of all the things they have and haven't done in the hope that that might stop the, the judgment that they perceive against them. Verse 2 says, and he sent messengers to Ahab this is the Ben-Hadid of Syria king of Israel, into the city and said to him, thus says Ben-Hadid thy silver and thy gold is mine, thy wives also, thy children, even the goodliest are mine. And so now the king of Syria just as it been prophesied, he said, I'm going to take your children away. Now all that Ahab has amassed, all the, the things that he thought he'd accomplished. How far does God have to go before he gets your attention? You know, sometimes God will just give us a, a gentle rebuke. Because he's a loving father, he doesn't want us to go astray. But sometimes God goes to further measures with us. In an attempt to get our attention. But you know, there comes a point, and we see a number of times in Scripture, where God says, Enough. You've been warned. You've had my word. You've had my witness. You've had my prophets. If you've rejected all of that and you will not turn back to me, then judgment will come. And it's the same in our own lives. You know, we cannot play around with sin and think we're going to get away with it. God is not mocked. And the king of Israel answered and said, My Lord, O king. So this is Ahab now responding to Ben Hadid. According to thy saying, I am thine and all that I have. It's incredible. He just capitulates. I mean, he's rejected God to the extent that it seems that even now in his darkest hour, he doesn't even consider calling out to God. There's no attempt here on Ahab's part that we read in the text that he gets on his knees and repents and goes to God. He's so far away from God. Then he just gives in. He just says to Ben king of Syria, okay. You see, this is just like we read elsewhere in scripture that sin sears our conscience so that we become past feeling. And I think that Ahab's allowed himself to come to this place. He's got so accustomed to a life of rebellion against God, of rejecting God, that now, when he most desperately needs God, He doesn't even call out to him. Verse 5 carries on. And the messengers came again and said, Thus speaks Ben-Hadid, saying, Although I have said unto thee, saying, Thou shalt deliver me, thy silver and thy gold, thy wives thy children, yet will I send my servants unto thee tomorrow about this time, and they shall search thine house and the houses of thy servants, and it shall be that whatsoever is pleasant in thine eyes, they shall put it in their hand and take it away. Now I think this is interesting as well. Notice this although I've said that that's what I'm going to do actually, you know what I'm going to take whatever I want and so I'm going to send some people and they're going to look around the palace and anything that we fancy we are going to have I think this is quite interesting because sin will always demand more than we originally agreed and we need to understand that sin and Satan so subtle in his temptations and as we were looking at our Bible study on Thursday the real root of the temptations comes from within anyway but of course, Satan will manipulate those things. You know, always so subtle. And we think we've made some sort of bargain or agreement. We think we know how far we're going to go with this. You know, maybe it was only just a little lie, or maybe just I feel a bit of bitterness, but I will, you know, deal with it eventually, or a bit of anger. You know, I know it was wrong, but, you know, sin will always demand more than we think we've agreed with it. You know, you may have heard that old adage that sin will take you further than you wanted to go, cost you more than you wanted to pay, and keep you longer than you wanted to stay. That's what sin does. And just as we see here, you know, Ben Haddie comes originally and says, I want this and this. And then he comes back and says, actually, I want even more. But I want everything. And of course, that's the way sin is. And we read in Matthew 18, I believe it is, of the parable that Jesus gives us of the man who had the debt and so on. And it talks about sin, or it talks about rooting out all his increase. That's what sin does. It roots out all your increase, everything you have. Well, then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land. So now it's like a bit of a problem now. He's going to call the elders together and said, Mark, I pray you and see how this man seeks mischief. It's incredible that he was content almost to, to give up his wives, his children, the silver, the gold. But now he have been told he's going to lose everything. Now he's going to go and see if we can do something about this. Mark, I pray you see how this man seeks mischief. He sent unto me for my wives, of my children, for my silver, of my gold, and I denied him not. And all the elders and all the people said unto him, Hearken not unto him, nor consent. It's kind of like, you did what? How could you just give in so easy? You're supposed to be the king. At least the elders here seem to have some backbone and they want to stand up. You see, it's interesting that, you know, without God, often we think we're strong. Certainly the people in the world have that perception. Ahab, no question, had that perception. He thought he was strong. He was the king. But suddenly he realizes just how weak he is without God. You know, without him, we can do nothing. Of course, in our own lives, if we try and live without God, if we try and do things without God, we'll soon discover just how weak we really are. You know, Samson's strength left him when he left God, when he abandoned God, when he rejected that which God had said for him, to live as a Nazarite. When he rejects that, all his strength goes. He's nothing without God. And we need to realize, you know, sometimes we get comfortable and almost complacent, but we've got to realize that without God we really are nothing, we have nothing. Wherefore, he said unto the messengers of Ben-Hadid, so now a little bit emboldened after the elders have uh, given him a bit of a pep talk, and tell my lord the king, and uh, all that thou descend uh, for to thy servant at the first I will do. So everything I agree to first, I'll do that. But this thing... I may not do, so this second request. And the messages departed and brought him word again. And Ben Hadid sent to him and said, The gods do so unto me, and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people that follow me. Of course, we've got thirty two kings that are allied with Ben Hadid now. And he just sees red, just absolutely infuriated by this response from Ahab. I mean, first of all, he's capitulated and given in, and now he's kind of standing up and saying, well, you'd have that, but, but you can't. Have, you know. Ahab seemingly has no power with which to bargain. Verse 11 carries on. And the king of Israel answered and said, Tell him, let not him that girds on his harness boast himself as he that puts it off. Quite like that phrase. But really just saying, you know, don't, don't start boasting yet. The battle's not happened. You know, talking about the one that puts on his harness, getting ready for the battle, in comparison to one that's now won the battle and it's all done and now we've got home and we're taking our harness off and so on. You know, and Ahab being quite bold, he almost kind of imagined him kind of saying this and looking at the, the elders and thinking, is that okay? <laughs> Should I say that? And it came to pass that when Ben, ben- Hadid heard this message, As he was drinking, he and the kings and the pavilions, that he said unto his servants, set yourselves in array. And they set themselves in array against the city. So this for Ben-Hadid, that's it. I'm not going to play with this individual anymore. Ahab's days are over as far as Ben-Hadid is concerned. And I love this. This is wonderful. Just picture the scene. Behold, there came a prophet unto Ahab, king of Israel now I just you can imagine that Ahab are there the elders are there they're talking about this problem the city is besieged 32 kings outside the battle lines are being drawn up they're all looking now and just this prophet walking in walking around the palace possibly whistling, looking at the pictures on the wall and somebody says uh, can I help? no no no, just, just, just looking just looking for Ahab which one's Ahab? and Ahab's probably you know thinking to himself we've got a real security problem these prophets just keep walking in don't they? And so this prophet walks in and says, um, oh, so you're Ahab, okay. Thus says the Lord, has thou seen all this great multitude? <laughs> it's a great question. Because imagine having him, are you serious? You can look out the window, you can see them. And it's just, again, when God asks these kind of questions, God wants us to think. God never asks a question because he needs the information. And just is reiterating, just how big a problem have you got here? Have you seen this great multitude? Now of course, I don't think Ahab is under any illusion what kind of predicament he's in here. But this is just just wonderful. And then the prophet carries on and says, this is what God has said. Behold, I will deliver it, all this army, into thine hand this day. And thou shalt know that I am he, the Lord. Now I just wonder what Ahab thought at that moment. Suddenly this Prophet again, just so again, walks right in, bypassed all the security, and comes in and says, You know what? God is going to deliver you. Now we're going to see that it's not because of anything to do with Ahab, it's because of God's glory that God chooses to do this. Ahab said, By whom? I mean, how? How are we going to defeat this army? And he said, Thus says the Lord, even the young men of the princes of the provinces. So He's saying the young people, the people that still have some zeal, some passion about the nation in which they live. The princes of the provinces. Go and call them, get them. And then he said, "Well, who's going to be in charge? Who shall order the battle? And he, the prophet, said, you. And they have going, me? Really? And so then we're told, verse 15, then he numbered the young men of the princes of the provinces and they were two hundred and thirty-two. Yeah, you know, I just this report comes back to Ahab. How many have we got? Two hundred thirty-two, two hundred thirty-two thousand. That's pretty good. No, two hundred thirty-two. That's all we've got. And after them, he numbered all the people, even all the children of Israel, being seven thousand. So our army, our combined army of Israel, is seven thousand two hundred thirty-two. That's all you've got, Ahab. You know this is impossible by man's standards. Again, this is all against an army of 32 kings and their allied forces, plus Syria. But interestingly, we read in Psalm 33, picking up verse 16. There is no king saved by the multitude of a host. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. A horse is a vain thing for safety. Neither shall he deliver any by his great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them That fear him. Upon them the hope. In his mercy. To deliver their soul from death. And to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart. Shall rejoice in him. Because we have trusted. In his holy name. Let thy mercy O Lord be upon us. According as we hope in thee. Now that. Should have been. Ahab's position right from the very start. But God just underlining for us in Psalm 33 that it's not about how big, how strong, how powerful we think we are. Because when we're up against God, it doesn't matter how powerful, the size of our army or anything. And so we read, and they went out at noon, but Ben-Hadid was drinking himself drunk in the pavilions. He and the Kings, the 30 and 2 kings that helped him. And the young men of the princes of the provinces went out first. So these 232 men go out first. And Ben-Hadad sent out and they told him, saying, there are men come from out from Samaria. Now Ben-Hadad, in such a position of confidence, here really isn't bothered about these people. He says, well, whether they come out for peace, take them alive. Or whether they come out for war, take them alive. You know, Just, just bring them in. Just totally underestimating. The threat that's against him because he hasn't calculated that God is involved. Interestingly, Proverbs thirty-one, verse four through seven, and so on, it just reminds us. It says, "It's not for kings, o Lemuel. It's not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish, and wine unto those that be of heavy hearts." Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. You a lot of warning in scripture about the danger of drink of alcohol and the way it can destroy lives. And clearly here, a king in his position, so confident that he just doesn't think he needs to worry about anything and drinking himself drunk with the other kings that are with him. Again, to his own harm as we'll see. So these young men of the princes of the provinces, came out of the city and the army which followed them. Some army, only 7,000. But we told, and they slew everyone his man. And the Syrians fled. And Israel pursued them. And Ben-Hadid, the king of Assyria, escaped on a horse with the horsemen. Probably feeling a little bit dizzy and worse aware at this point. And the king of Israel went out. And he smote the horses and the chariots. And slew the Syrians with a great slaughter. This was impossible just 24 hours earlier. There was no way Ahab or any of the people in Israel would have necessarily perceived this as a possibility. And now God has given them this incredible victory. So you see, remember, of course, that with God all things are possible. And the prophet came to the king of Israel this prophet again, he's so he just gone, left the palace, wherever he's gone, and now he just comes back. And, and said unto him, Go, strengthen thyself, and mark, and see what thou doest. For at the return of the year, the king of Syria will come up against thee. So this is a little bit of advanced warning. You kind of, this is the political forecast of what's going to be happening. And what's going to happen is that Ben Haddon is not going to give up. He's been humiliated here today. By the end of the year, he's going to come back. And I think it's interesting, the phrase that we see there, see what thou do. Go, strengthen thyself and mark and see what you do. Think about what you are doing. Is I think really what's being said. And I think also here, be mindful of what the Lord has promised. You see, God has given plenty of promises for obedience. We've seen this already. And I think this is a a final opportunity, a final challenge to Ahab to turn it around and serve God. There was no question that God had given them this victory. And the servants of the king of Syria said unto him, their gods are gods of the hills, therefore they were stronger than we. (laughs) But let us fight against them in the plain and surely we will be stronger than they in other words, they're saying, well, the, the reason we lost is we were fighting in the wrong place. Uh, you know, We were fighting up in the, the hillside near Samaria. And that's why they win, because their gods are, are the gods there. But look, if we fight in the plain, that's where our gods are, are best. I'm well, not much of a god, is it really, if he's got a postcode. And do this thing, take the kings away, every man out of his place, and put captains in their rooms, and number thee an army, Like the army that thou hast lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot, and we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we'll be stronger than they. And they hearkened unto their voice and did so. So now this, again, allied army getting ready. And it came to pass in the return of the year that Ben-Hadid numbered the Syrians and went up to Afak to fight against Israel. And the children of Israel were numbered and were all present and went against them. And the children of Israel pitched before them like Two little flocks of kids. (laughs) But the Syrians filled the country. Again, just this total disparity between the, the forces of Israel that are there. Just like two little herds of lambs. That's all we've got. Compared to the Syrians that filled the country. And there came a man of God. Spoke to the king of Israel. I mean, you can just imagine somebody walks in, you're a prophet, aren't you? I know you're a prophet. How did you get in? You're a prophet. You've got to be. And he said, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is God of the hills, but he is not God of the valleys, therefore will I deliver all this great multitude into thine hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So God's saying, I don't going to do this because of you, Ahab. No more chances effectively for you, but I'm going to do this. Because I'm God and because they have made this bold statement about me and I will show them that they're wrong. You see God's reputation is at stake in those who are called by his name. Of course Ahab to the outside world was the king of Israel and therefore a servant of the God of Israel. The fact that in his heart and his life he wasn't that at all doesn't change the fact that he was still, as far as the world was concerned, representing God. You know, we just remember that we take the name of the Lord whenever we go out. When people know we're Christians, you know, Chuck Misler contends that the commandment, second commandment, which speaks about don't take the, na- the name of the Lord in vain, hasn't so much to do with vocabulary, but ambassadorship. That if you're going to take the name of the Lord, if you're going to take Christ's name upon yourself and call yourself a Christian Don't do it in vain. Verse 29 carries on. And they pitched one over against the other seven days. And so it was that in the seventh day the battle was joined. For seven days they're there, they're waiting, and suddenly the battle starts on the seventh day. And the children of Israel slew of the Syrians 100,000 footmen in one day. Now, this just gives us a hint at the kind of size of the army but the rest fled to Aphek into the city and there a wall fell upon 27,000 of the men that were left and Ben-Hadid fled and came into the city into an inner chamber now we're just talking 100,000 footmen not, it's not talking about the horses and the chariots and Israel just like these two little groups of lambs but God giving the victory and his servant said unto him, Behold, now we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us, I pray thee, put sackcloth on our loins and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Peradventure, he will save thy life. So they girded sackcloth on their loins and they put ropes on their heads and they came to the king of Israel and said, Thy servant Ben Hadad says, I pray thee, let me do, I'm really, really sorry. And he said, Is he yet alive? He is my brother. What? It's so Ahab now speaking to the king that was trying to destroy him. Verse 33 says, Now the men did diligently observe whether anything would come from him and did hastily catch it. And they said, Thy brother Ben-Hadid. So they respond straight away. You know, say, yeah, yeah, he, he's your brother. Yeah, yeah. Then he said, Go ye, bring him. Then Ben-Hadid came forth to him and he caused him to come up into the chariot. And Ben-Hadid said unto him, The cities which my father took from thy father I will restore. And, and thou shalt uh, make streets for thee in Damascus, as my father made in Samaria. And Ahab think, actually I quite like Ahab Street. Yeah, So he's going to name streets after him. And they said Ahab, I will send thee away with this covenant. So he made a covenant with him and sent him away. And just again, this is incredible. This is an unbelievable response from this king who was about to be destroyed by this individual. And now, because he just gets some little token gesture of naming a few roads after him or whatever, it's like, okay, well, we can be friends him. And a certain man of the sons of the prophets, another one, coming to Ahab. His whole life has just been this succession of prophets walking in. You Ahab, yeah, okay, got a message for you. And a certain man of the sons of the prophets said unto his neighbor in the word of the Lord, smite me. I pray thee. And the man refused to smite him. Then said he unto him, because thou hast not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as thou art departed from me, a lion shall slay thee. And as soon as he was departed from him, a lion found him and slew him. So this individual, the situation is that he goes up to an individual and says, I want you to, to strike me, wound me. Because he wants to show himself wounded as Ahab is going to come past in a moment. And this individual refuses as a result of that. He's disobedient. This lion slays him. a strange kind of scripture. We could probably spend hours digging into that. But of course we do know that Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And anybody that is not obedient to the voice of the Lord puts themselves in that position where we could be again attacked by that roaring lion verse 37 carries on then he found another man and said to him smite me I pray thee and the man smote him so that in smiting he wounded him so the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way and disguised himself with ashes upon his face and as the king passed by he cried unto the king so Ahab now coming past with his entourage no doubt and said thy servant went out into the midst of the battle and again Ahab is looking down for his chariot this individual seems to be wounded And behold, a man turned aside and brought a man unto me and said, Keep this man, if by any means he be missing, then shall thy life be for his, or else thou shalt pay a talent of silver. And now this prophet who's in disguise and creating this hypothetical scenario, says, And as thy servant was busy here and there, he was gone. The man I was supposed to be looking after has gone. And the king of Israel said unto him, So shall thy judgment be, thyself has declared it, has decided it. So he's saying, well, I'm sorry, but if that was what you agreed. And he hasted and took the ashes away from his face. And the king of Israel discerned him that he was of the prophets. And he said unto him, thus says the Lord, because thou hast Let go out of thy hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction. Therefore, thy life shall go for his life. And thy people for his people. And the king of Israel went home heavy and displeased. And came to Samaria. No doubt he was extremely displeased. Because after all this, God has allowed Israel this victory. He's been delivered twice. From what seemed like sure destruction. But again, because he was willing to make an alliance with the enemy. He ends up in this position where this prophet comes and acts out this little dramatic thing before him. And so God says, because you have let this man go, that I'd appointed destruction, it'll be your life for his. Enough, Ahab. God has had enough with you. Now of course... One lesson we draw from this is that we should make no compromise or agreement with God's enemies. You know, we don't make any compromise or agreement with our flesh because it will never keep that agreement that we thought we'd made with it. You know, we need to be ruthless with our flesh. You read through the book of Psalms, and there are many Psalms that can seem quite violent. But of course, when you realize that we're dealing with a battle, Not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. We're dealing with spiritual opposition that would seek to destroy us. That's why we can't allow ourselves to get entangled with the things of this world. You know, in the book of Hebrews, once again, we're warned about the sin which so easily ensnares us. You know, and there are numerous scriptures, and I'm sure many of them you're aware of already, but that speak of not getting entangled with the affairs of this life. You know, Paul specifically speaks to Timothy in kind of military speak and says that a soldier in the army of God shouldn't get entangled with the affairs of this life. And of course, Ahab now effectively his death warrant has been signed by God simply because despite all the witness, despite all the opportunities, he still refused to walk an obedient life. We'll pick it up from there next week. Let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you for the lessons that are contained therein. And Father, we see the foolishness of trusting the armor of flesh. And Lord, help us to be wise enough to trust you. Lord, we recognize that you are a God who can do anything. And the Lord, in you, we can do all things. But Lord, without you, we can do nothing. Lord, help us to recognize our own vulnerability, our own frailty. And to, Lord, be mindful of how much we need you. Lord, in the big things and in the small things. Father, we see that you are a God who is jealous of your name and your reputation. And so, Father, as we take your name upon ourselves, as we take the name of Christ and call ourselves Christians, may we live lives worthy of that calling. Father, impress these things upon our hearts. Help us to meditate and speak to us yet further in the days and the weeks ahead. That we would grow in knowledge and grace and that we would bring glory and honour to the one who was crucified.